Our Heavenly Father, we read just now that your word is truth. So help me now to faithfully preach the truth of your word and sanctify us in the truth that we may live faithfully as your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been shocked by the reality of death. As the pandemic has struck in India with hospitals overwhelmed and oxygen supplies running out, uh, mass cremations in the parks, uh, the medical system collapsing as the country struggles to cope. It has been difficult events to watch, uh, and even more so as we see the cases on the rise here in Malaysia as well. It reminds us that our own lives are actually very fragile. Now, what do you do? What do you pray in the face of such a situation? What would you do if you were in India and you were staring death in the face? Perhaps to make it a little bit more personal, imagine this morning that you were to catch COVID and you're rushed to the hospital. You're struggling to breathe as they, they put the ventilator in to pump oxygen into your body. And as your life starts to fade away, you've got one last chance to send a WhatsApp to your friends and family at home who can't visit you to ask them to pray. What would you ask them to pray in those dying moments? To save you? To look after your family? To let you into heaven? What would you pray? I think our prayers reveal what is most important to us in life. And our prayers in the face of death they show what lies at the very center of our beings, what really matters to us. And so here in John 17, God has given us a precious jewel because here, like nowhere else in the rest of the scriptures, we're invited to listen to Jesus, pray to his heavenly Father in an extended way on the night before he died. Just after this, he'll be betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane tried and condemned by Pilate, and then crucified on the cross. So what does Jesus pray in this prayer? What really matters to Jesus? I guess we could summarize it in one word, and that is the word glory. Jesus prays that he would be glorified. He prays that as he is glorified, that God would be glorified. He prays that his disciples will glorify him and that they will see his glory in the end. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Or verse 10. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. It's a prayer all about glory. And it falls into three parts. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 to 19, he prays for the apostles. And then verses 20 to 26, he prays for all believers. Well, firstly, Jesus prays for himself to be glorified, that God may be glorified. Now, verses 1 to 5 are a little bit like a cheeseburger, I think, uh, with different layers uh, from the bread on the outside, then you have the cheese and then the meat 
in the middle. So verses 1 to 5, we have the bread, and this is Jesus' request, that God would glorify him for the glory of God. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. It's the same as verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus declares here that his hour has now come. It's the hour he's been speaking about all throughout John's gospel, the hour of his sin-bearing death, the hour when he'll be raised triumphantly, the hour he will ascend to heaven in glory, the hour of his glorification. And so as this hour approaches, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Now, I think that request may shock us initially. I mean, is Jesus being rather selfish here? Is he really concerned only with his own glory? Well, the answer is no, he's not being selfish. Uh, because we see here that Jesus' glory is inextricably linked with his Father's glory. Look again at verse 1. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus prays that he will be glorified because he knows that that is how the Father, his heavenly Father, will be glorified. And that is Jesus' chief concern, the glory of his heavenly Father. He wants his Father's glory to be made known in all the world. And he knows that since he is the Son of God, that can only happen through him. You remember back to the beginning of John's Gospel, one chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the Father has tied up his glory with Jesus' glory, so that as Jesus is glorified in his death and resurrection, that is also the moment that God the Father is glorified as well. Now we might ask, how? How is God glorified in the death and resurrection of Jesus? To answer that, we have to come now to the cheese of the hamburger and verses 2 and 4. Uh, this is the grounds of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays, verse 2, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus knows the whole purpose of his coming into this world was to die on the cross, to give eternal life to his people. So because the cross is God's will, as Jesus finishes his work on the cross, God is glorified. At verse 4 looks to the completion of that work. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. On the cross, of course, Jesus will cry, it is finished, as he completes his Father's work, and so bringing glory to his Father who sent him. Now, again, we might ask, how exactly does that obedient death on the cross bring glory to God. And now we come to the meat of the hamburger. It all comes down to what eternal life is. So I guess uh, sometimes we think of heaven as uh, eternal singing uh, to harps, perhaps. 
uh, or we think heaven is about fulfilling all of our desires, uh, maybe unlimited ice cream, uh, self-washing clothes, uh, and 24-7 computer games. That would be heaven for some people here, I think. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, heaven will be unimaginably good beyond our wildest dreams. But the thing is, heaven is not about stuff. It's not just about comforts and luxuries. What makes heaven heaven is relationship. It's about knowing God. And so we see that in verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is saying true life, eternal life, the very purpose of our existence is to know God, to know him through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is glorified at the cross and God is glorified in him because as Jesus goes to the cross in obedience to his Father's will, taking the punishment we deserve, well, we come to know God in the fullness of his character, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his kindness, his love, they're all perfectly demonstrated. And because God's glory is his character, his own being, at the cross, we come to know and see the glory of God in all its fullness. So Jesus prays, he will be glorified, that, the, that God will be glorified. So have you seen the glory? Do you know God? Have you seen the glory of God manifest at the cross? Because we cannot know God in his glory through some other means, through some other religion, or through some other way. God has displayed his glory, made his glory known, only through the cross. Well, it brings us to the second part of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays for his apostles to be preserved in their witness in the world. Jesus prays for the apostles to be preserved as his witnesses in the world. So in verses 6 to 19, the, the main section, Jesus prays for the disciples. But before he presents his request, he reminds the Father who his disciples are. Now, of course, God doesn't need reminding of who the disciples are. He already knows everything. Uh, he's describing them to God because he knows that the disciples themselves are listening in on this prayer. We are listening in on this prayer. And so he prays these words to the Father to encourage them and us to spur us on to be these people he wants us to be. So who are they? Who are the apostles? First, we're told that they are owned by God. They belong to the Father, given to the Son. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I think we're probably used to thinking of Jesus as God's gift to us, and that's certainly true, isn't it? But we may not have realized that we are God's gift to Jesus. God gives us to Jesus to be his people for his glory. They're owned by God. Secondly, they know Jesus' identity, verse 7. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So they've come to believe that Jesus is the one sent from the Father, that he's the Messiah, and so they have received his word. 
Thirdly, they have glorified Christ. Verse 9 and 10. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. It's another staggering statement. It's easy to just wash over us. That God gives believers to Jesus for his glory, for his honor. I mean, I wonder if that is how we think about ourselves. Someone God has given to Jesus for the glory of his name. That ought to make us think uh, about who we really are and why we are alive on this world. We're reminded here that the disciples believed in Jesus because of God. He gave them to Jesus for his glory. So that's who the disciples are. They belong to God. They know Jesus' identity. and They've been given to him for his glory. So in verse 11 to 19, Jesus now prays for them. And the main thing he prays here is for spiritual protection. Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now in the Old Testament, God placed his name in the temple. Uh, and so here, Jesus now declares... He is the place where God has set his name. He's saying he is the true temple. But not only that, the apostles have come to bear his name. They also are the temple as his people. And Jesus prays, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them trusting in me as disciples. Protect them. Persevere them. Because Jesus knows that in the world, disciples will be hated in the world, the devil will attack. In the world, his people will be in great danger. And Jesus knows this is especially the case because he's about to leave them and ascend to heaven. And he himself will no longer be able to guard them directly. Verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here we get that famous phrase that Christians use. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are God's people, but we are not at home in this creation. We are the sanctified people of God who live as foreigners in this world. And because we are foreigners and aliens in this place, we expect the hatred and opposition of the world. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, these verses ought to set our expectations straight for the Christian life. If we are believers, we belong to God, well, we will attract the hatred and the opposition of this world in which we live. I wonder if that is your experience 
of the Christian life. Now, of course, thankfully, it's not all suffering in the Christian life. Expectation Jesus has is that as we live for him in this world, distinctly and faithfully for him in a world that hates him, we too will be hated. We too will be opposed. But what a comfort it is to know that Jesus understands our struggles. He himself prays for our protection. Now, as he prays for this protection, he does so that we, so that we will experience three things. The first thing is unity. Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So as we hold fast to Jesus in a world that hates him, that should draw us into a deeper unity with one another. The second experience we should have is joy. It's in verse 13. I am coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So even as we face this hatred and opposition from the world, we still have joy because we know that this world's not our final destination. We belong to Jesus, we're headed to the Father's presence, and that gives us great joy, even as we suffer in this world. So unity, joy, and the last thing it should lead to is mission in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. To be sanctified means you are set apart as holy. I like to uh, joke that my toothbrush is, is uh, holy, right? It's set apart only for use by me, right? Not to be shared with my children, right? Uh, we are holy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we are removed from the world, We've seen that we are in the world, but not of the world. But Jesus leaves us in the world so that as those who have believed in Christ and as we're transformed by God's word, we will be able then to witness to others. As Christians, being holy doesn't mean that we retreat into some holy huddle. We all become monks and nuns and go to a monastery somewhere and only ever associate with other Christians. No, God has left us in this world for a purpose, that we may make him known to others. So Jesus prays for himself to be glorified so that God will be glorified. He prays for the apostles to be preserved as witnesses in the world. And finally, Jesus prays for us. I think this is the most, one of the most fantastic parts of this prayer. In this final section, of Jesus' prayer, he looks forward to those who are going to believe through the apostles. In other words, he's praying for you and me. We see it in verse 20. I do not ask, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So what is it that the Lord Jesus himself prays for you, for me, on the night before he died? Well, he prays that we will be united witnesses to the world. We will be united witnesses to the world. We see that prayer for unity in verse 21. He prays that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, 
even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So Jesus prays that we will be united with one another perfectly as he is with his heavenly Father. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Here we see this intimate unity between the Father and the Son, a relationship of mutual indwelling where the Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father. It's hard to come up with a, an illustration of this. I mean, a, a pregnant woman will have a baby in their tummy, but the baby can be in the tummy, the mother can't be in the baby at the same time. But that's the kind of unity, mutual indwelling that we have here. And this is why Christians believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of three persons, but it's only one God because they are united with one another. But it is that close, intimate unity that Jesus is praying that we as believers will have. A unity where he dwells in us and we dwell in him. And so we're united not only with the Father and the Son, but with one another in this intimate way. The fact that Jesus talks about oneness, unity, so many times in this prayer, it shows just how concerned Jesus is for the unity of his church. He really wants his people to be united in Christ and, and the gospel. Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for us on the night before he died, this is it, unity. And I take it then, if unity mattered to Jesus that much, it should also matter to us as well. Now, I know I myself know that it's so much easier to harbor bitterness, to reject those who hurt us, or even to retaliate to others. But Jesus prays for unity, and he wants us to pursue it, to put aside our preferences, to confess our sins, to forgive those who hurt us, to embrace those who are different to us, to put the interests of others above my own, to speak the truth in love. He really wants us to be united. And he tells us the reason why this matters so much to him. The reason is he wants us to be effective witnesses for him in this world. You look at verse 21, he prays for unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, prays for unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I'm sure we've all heard testimonies like that. Uh, very often when people come to Christ, they will say that one of the things that attracted them to Jesus was as they went to a church and they witnessed the love of Christians for one another and for them. As they see them living in this genuine love and unity, it it brings them to Jesus. There's something different about these people. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If the impact of the gospel was not evident in our lives, we would never be able to be a good witness to others, could we? It's only as the gospel transforms our hearts so that we're united in Christ that we can be that powerful witness to the world which will draw people to faith in Jesus. The divided church then will be a church that falls. Right? A united church will be one that grows. 
Well, finally, Jesus prays that we will reach our destination, that we will actually arrive in heaven and see his glory. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus knows that the cross will draw people to faith in Jesus. He knows that the word of the apostles will preserve us in following Jesus. And he prays that we will make it. We will see his heavenly glory. His glory grounded in the eternal love of the Father. And so as the prayer closes, he prays that we too will continue to know the Father and experience his love for us as well. Verse 25, the end of this prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And with that, Jesus circles to where he began, defining eternal life as knowing God. Jesus prays, we will know the Father, experience the love of the Father, and that will then produce in us the same love for others as we head to glory. Well, I know that was uh, uh, probably too much in that, uh, a bit too ambitious this morning perhaps to do the whole chapter, but let's try and summarize as we conclude. We've seen that Jesus prays for himself to be glorified at the cross because he knows that as he is glorified, his Father will be glorified. And Jesus prays for the apostles to be preserved as witnesses in the world because it's no, he, he knows that it's through their word that we will come to know God. And he doesn't just pray for the apostles, he prays for us to be united witnesses in the world who will finally see his glory at the end. So what is it that really matters to Jesus? What does this prayer reveal of his heart? You see the three things? He cares about the glory of God, the preservation of God's people, and the salvation of the world. And that's why he prays these things. I wonder if that is what matters to us this morning, what our life is about, the glory of God, the preservation of his people, the salvation of the world, as we live as united witnesses in the world, but not of the world. I wonder if those will be our parting prayer points to our relatives in our dying days. I think Jesus prays this prayer and the Apostle John records it in full because God's will is that we live out this prayer, that we pursue all these things in our lives. We live for the glory of God. We live for the preservation of his people. We live for the salvation of the world. So will you live this glorious prayer to the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we indeed want to praise you for your glory. We thank you that you sent your Son, that we might know you, that we might receive eternal life. 
that we may enter into relationship with you and one day be with you, witnessing your glory face to face. Lord, we long for that day, but we know right now we live in this world as aliens and strangers. We face opposition, we face hostility, we are away from our true home. And so, Lord, we thank you for this prayer of Jesus to encourage us. Help us, Lord, to live it out. Help us truly to pursue unity, that we may be effective witnesses in this world. Pour out your love into our hearts, that we may ex not only experience your love, but reflect it to others. Lord, preserve us, keep us in your name, that we may arrive at our destination and see your glory and experience eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.